Welcome to the Tim Fowler Show, where production is paramount and we discuss the tools, time, and people associated with getting jobs done and making a profit. On today's episode of the Tim Fowler Show, we will be talking about managing a large in-house labor staff with the help of special guest Nick Beasley of Adams and Beasley Associates in Carlisle, Massachusetts. Alongside Tim Fowler, I'm your co-host Steve Wheeler. Here is the Tim Fowler Show. Hey everyone, I'm Tim Fowler and welcome to the Tim Fowler Show. If you've been listening to these podcasts over the last few weeks, you've noticed that on many occasions the guests have been primarily project manager based companies where defining that by saying they have project managers, most of their field labor is outsourced to subcontractors. And so a lot of folks have moved that way. And I don't know exactly why, except I think it helps them control their labor costs a little bit. And perhaps it's just the culture that they want to build in their company. So today we're talking with a guest that they have most of their production staff in-house. It's a very large company. They have roughly 43 in-house employees. 31 of them are related to actually producing the product. And so that's a big staff. That's a lot of uh, people to keep track of. And so we wanted to give this balance because it's important for us to understand there's a lot of different ways for us to actually produce these jobs. Now, if you stop and think about it, a company with five or 10 people out in the field, they struggle with making sure that everything gets uh, hit. They, the, the training that has to take place, the supervision, mistakes being made, fixes, all those kinds of things are just enormous tasks for people who have in-house employees. And then you make that, you triple that number. And then I believe Nick has told us that they actually have that number in-house. Plus then they have framing contractors that work for them as subs and trim carpenters. And so there's a lot of different moving parts. The company does about $19 million a year. And uh, so a lot of volume there. So it's going to be kind of fun for us to uh, talk with Nick about a lot of different things. Uh, We hope you get some vision for how this can be done. And uh, I'm looking forward to sharing these things with you today. So, Tim, you do a lot of consulting nationwide uh, for a lot of different companies. Is there there a balance or an imbalance in in how many companies are doing in-house labor versus subbing out labor? You know, I don't know how to answer that. It's so particular to different companies, uh, I think as companies get bigger and bigger, and this is what excites me about Adams and Beasley, is usually when you get to the 19 million, you're a much more project manager, subcontractor base because of the difficulty of finding you know, good people to work for you. And so that tends to be the trend as I see it. As you grow, get bigger and bigger you become more subcontractor based. A lot of the small guys are using in-house carpentry particularly. Well, you mentioned, you know, finding work, which is a big issue. So that's got to be an issue for companies that are having uh, in-house labor. And when I was in remodeling, it was kind of at that 
point where I had to decide, you know, do I go one way or another in a certain model? So hopefully Nick can shine a light on that <laughs> for people listening. So without further ado, for the last six years, Nick has played an integral role in the growth and development of Adams and Beasley Associates, acting as the director of production. Prior to his current role, Nick operated his own residential construction firm for over a decade. Today, he manages a staff of over 30 carpenters and project managers focused on complex and architecturally dynamic residential remodeling projects in and around Boston, Mass. Welcome to the show, Nick. Thanks, Steve. Hi, Tim. Hey, Nick. It's so great to have you on here. And maybe just to give you the listeners a little context, give us a kind of a breakdown of where these 30 people are that are your in-house staff and are part of the production team. So, what is their role? What are their positions? So we have uh, five project managers. We have five dedicated lead carpenters. We have four people in our estate care in small projects uh, division, including they have an estate care manager who manages that group. Uh, we have our own in-house mill workshop, which has um, three bench guys and a millwork manager there. And then I think that means about 12 or so who are field carpenters that do a lot of our um, projects. Okay. So for, again, for everybody's benefit, differentiate a little bit in your world, what the difference between a project manager, what are their responsibilities and what are your lead carpenter responsibilities? Cause those two terms quite often get mixed around. Like one of the companies we had on the podcast, they call their, lead carpenters, project managers for a lot of different reasons. And so just so everybody can understand the project manager role versus the lead carpenter role, what's the difference? So in our projects, the project manager's role is to manage the project at a very high level. So they deal with budgets, they deal with sort of overall timeline, they deal with change orders, they deal with um, scope, they'll interface with the clients and the designers. And that's mostly their role. Where the lead carpenter's role, if you really think about them as leading the production on the site. And so they will figure out um, what's happening the next couple of weeks, sort of on a more micro level, you know, one to two weeks out, what staff we need, what materials we need, what needs to be ordered, um, you know, what subs are going to be needed when, uh, and that sort of thing. Yeah, that sounds like a, a lot of the vision that, again, as companies get bigger and bigger, they tend to go either all sub or they go to this model where the project manager has the, for lack of a better term, management role more so than on-site uh, functioning, certainly with the tools and, and those those kinds of things. So this is really great. So how do you keep all this straight? I guess, I mean, that's kind of a big uh, general question, but what is your role, I guess, in this? And maybe give us a few tips on some of the things you do that keeps it organized so that it's, it, it, it isn't just chaos. So there's sort of three th processes that we do that I think helps us keep it organized in our mind. So the, the lead carpenters each week have a meeting with their project manager and they do the one to three week look ahead. Well, they'll look at what's happening next week. And then, so they know, they really know what's happening the next coming week. And then they'll try and project out two to three weeks and figure out what's happening what staff week they going to need? Um, 
you know, what materials do they need? What subs are going to be there? Are we need to help the subs? Are there things that we have to get done before those subs can come in? And they'll sort of strategize about that. So that happens on Thursdays. On Friday mornings, I have a meeting with the, with the uh, project managers. And then we'll go through the different jobs and we review budgets and we schedules in a, in a general sense. But they also do, we have a uh, labor distribution spreadsheet that we work on. And the PMs will sort of horse trade between who needs who and what's happening on their jobs. And uh, oftentimes my role is sort of a referee between them saying, <laughs> nice if you guys had this, but I know that this job has a delivery date in three weeks and they need to push through this. And so we're going to throw some more labor towards him and we'll get you, you know, we'll cover you later on when you're going to need that same kind of help. And so, but for the most part, they're pretty good about knowing, coming in with knowing what they need and negotiating with each other. Um, rarely do I have to step in and say, this is the way it's going to be. So it's worked out as we've developed this process, they've gotten really good at it. And then on top of that, we, on Monday mornings, so after I have the meetings with the PMs, I go on Monday mornings, we have what we call a super Gantt meeting, which has all of our projects in production and all of our projects kind of looking forward. Um, and we start figuring out, you know, which PMs and which lead carpenters are going to go to which jobs when they're done next. And then um, how we keep everybody busy and, and what jobs are we going to have, you know, are going to be super uh, carpentry heavy, which is going to need a lot of our internal staff versus what jobs are mostly sub heavy in terms of, you know, outside trades, which is plumbing, electrical, HVAC, works that we don't necessarily do in-house. And so we look at those and try and get a sense. And if we if we can see a, a jam coming or a crunch, then we'll start reaching out to our, our other carpentry, say our carpentry subcontractors and yeah. talk to them about making sure that, you know, in three months we're going to think we're going to need you to help us frame this, you know, can you kind of put us on our your schedule so that we don't end up getting stuck, um, you know, understaffed and over-promising on the project's delivery dates. That sounds really cool, getting this labor distribution spreadsheet set up. One of the questions that came up recently with the company I was working with was, what happens when you got that all set up and a change order occurs, and now the people I thought were going to be able to go work with you are now occupied with a $100,000 change order on a job? And they can't move. They can't go because I got to get this done. Does that throw everything into a tizzy because you got so many people to deal with? Well, that actually adds some complexity to it. I think that our change orders don't come up that quickly in that our change order process, not that it's slow, I think it's actually pretty quick, but we kind of know where it's when they're coming and when it's not. Um, or I would say not when, but when it is going to happen. And so we can plan a little bit ahead. I think that... Part of the benefit to having the in-house staff is that it gives us much more flexibility and control because oftentimes, you know, for example, if you have a huge change order for different countertops, it has no impact on our staffing. If we have a large change order because they want to reside the house and we want to do that in-house, then that does. And so, you know, we have maybe at that point we can say, well, we know that we have those trim carpentry subs on this job. They'll come in and fill in here and these guys can go do that. So it gives us a lot of a lot of ability to sort of move the pieces around as we need to kind of get the jobs done on time. And I think one of the things that we do, which I think why we continue to hold on to the in-house staff is we do a lot of compressed timeframes on our projects, which means, you know, if we have a delayed cabinetry delivery for a week, that can throw a whole job in. So we know like we can't, we thought it was going to happen this week. It's not going to happen. We'll slide guys over to here and we'll push this job ahead a little bit further than they maybe wanted to be. It's knowing we're going to bring, 
those guys plus some back here to, to bang out the cabinet installed so we can get the painters in. You know, all those pieces are constantly moving. And so you're right, it is it does throw things up in the air, but that ability and flexibility to having our own staff um, provides us, allows us to kind of keep those balls in the air and keep the projects moving. Now, do you keep a lead carpenter or two or three lead carpenters or one lead carpenter, I guess, per with the PM or do they move around? Does do or do they stay as a team and that makes a great working environment so they kind of know how each other thinks or do you move them around to, to create diversity or as needed? I move them around to create diversity. I mean, there are sometimes the way that things line up, they'll do a couple of jobs in a row, but I think it's good for everybody, A, because not everyone gets along great um, that they go and experience somebody else. And additionally, if so, you know, everyone feels like they all want this lead carpenter, then everyone will have a turn with that lead carpenter and then they'll deal with somebody else. And, you know, some lead carpenters prefer using other project managers, just the way their, their personalities go together. So, which is actually, we have a, you know, we have a monthly lead carpenter meeting. This is one of the things we talk about, which is what are the processes really getting a lead carpentry process of how to deal with the managers together so that as each lead carpenter moves to work with a different manager, they're talking the same language and they're using the same forms and they're doing the same process so that it's consistent so that no one's not re, re contributing the wheel each time they move on to a new you know pm lead carpenter combination so nick one thing i think that causes hesitation for people to go the in-house labor out is the overall cost so can you run me through how you do uh just the trucks the tools the insurance you know maybe not too detailed in the insurance but you know just how you're managing uh having the uniforms yeah, all the things it takes to outfit an in-house labor staff. Well, interestingly, you know, we used to provide all of our tools to everybody, and we've actually been moving away from that uh, that process where we were. Adams and Beasley would just give the tools. You know, I mean, obviously, we expect everyone to have their own hand tools, um, but the bigger tools, the the table saws and the chop saws and the big compressors and so on, we used to just provide them for the job sites, and uh, we've been moving towards specifically giving those to lead carpenters and or what we call senior carpenters and saying, this is your saw when either, either we bought and provided for them and now they're supposed to be responsible for it. And that way they take much better care of the tools. Um, you know, we have on the, on the smaller scale, we have lists of tools that we expect each you know category of um, employee to have so if you're an apprentice carpenter then we expect you to have this set of tools and before you kind of become a carpenter you have to fill that list and then carpenters are supposed to have you know these 30 or 40 tools and once you have if you're going to move into a senior carpenter or journeyman then you should have these tools and so we um, provide a tool allowance annually for them to, to help them um, develop that but we also expect them to sort of invest in themselves and uh and you know, purchase their own tools again, because they take much better care of them when they're their own tools and not so much when ABA provides them for them. And how about in terms of, we provide, we have a lot of shirts and swag and, you know, hats and jackets and stuff that we give to them. So they kind of look, you know, when they go on the job site, they look uh, presentable, but uh, you know, otherwise I think that that, you know, the insurance is just, it's uh, we kind of fold it into our cost and our pricing and we do our labor burden cost plus a markup, and that's what we build a client, and so it should all be covered in our on the projects. So you mentioned you mentioned the compressed time frame as one of the benefits of having the in-house labor. So I'm curious, are there others that you could point to 
that would say uh, this is a good reason why a company might, uh, you know, if they're already in the employee game and they start getting to this size, that they stay in that game. What, what are some other benefits that you see? Well, let's see. I mean, control of schedule is a huge thing, I think, for us. Um, I think training of the staff and consistency of the quality of the work that we provide. You know, everyone kind of speaking the same language. People knowing, you know, when we do floor protection, everyone knows how to do floor protection the same way. It's the way that we feel confident that will be bulletproof. And we're not hoping that somebody else will do a good job. Um, you know, skill development of the, of the people that we have on staff. Um, we're training them the way to do things the way that we like them. Again, you know, floor protection, pocket doors, uh, installing windows and doors, doing, you know, there's, there's a hundred ways to do it, but if people can kind of do it the same way, they can do it quickly. How do we, how do you put together, you know, a miter trim? You know, how do we install cabinets? How do we lay those things out? As you're training the younger guys up, you know, it allows us to do more better work. And uh, bringing in other people who've been doing it another way for a long time sometimes creates a little bit of challenge, especially, you know, when we have the subcontracted carpenters that come in, you know, we have our way and they have their way. And it's always, it's always a give and take. And sometimes it's a better way than we've been doing it. We're always open to new ideas, but it's nice to know that at least if, People have been trained by us. We know that they're going to do it the way that we want it to be done. So um, talking about training and everything, and one of the things I hear from contractors all over the place is, I'm not going to train these guys. They're just going to up and leave me for a dollar an hour. So what are you doing that you can keep 30 people on your staff that, that aren't just jumping ship to go to some other contractor? Because I know – in the area where you guys work, there's some pretty good contractors and uh, the chances of losing somebody in this market is huge. So anything you can think of maybe that, that the company does that really helps to solidify you're on the staff, we love you and and please stay. Well, we pay pretty well. I think that that helps. <laughs> we, have, we have strong benefits. So I think that that's a big, that helps. Um, you know, we've worked really hard to develop a certain culture in our company and a lot of, and because the other owners and myself all came out of construction and we all get it. And I think a lot of carpenters like to come work for us because we understand their position and what they, and what they do. And so they, you know, we have a lot of people who come to us because we have a reputation of being, you know, craft oriented and, you know, right. a great place to work. We've also, you know, we're really particular about who we hire. We hire a lot for culture not just for skill. We feel like we can train you in the skills, but, uh, you know, teaching someone work ethic, intelligence, you know, alarm clock issues, you know, those things are hard to teach. I can teach you how to install a door. I can teach you how to trim a window or, you know, make a scribe. And so, um, you know, I think that most people will say that they love, you know, love everybody they work with, but they, there's no one that they avoid working with in our company. And we're very careful about who we bring on board. Um, to keep that culture going where it's a fun place to work and people enjoy coming in most days. Of course, not everyone likes to come in every day. We get that, but it's, uh, that's been, I think that's the biggest sort of our appreciation of the craft and our dedication to the craft. And so craft people want to come and work with us because we continue to, to fight for that with them. It's not just about the dollars. It's about what we leave behind and the legacy of the work that we do. And that is really a big part of our culture. And so, um, you know, and I think the younger guys who come in, you're kind of caught up in it, you know, and hopefully they'll stick around. Um, 
they always could go on. I think we're, you know, again, I think that we pay really competitively and that helps people. It, it makes it less enticing for them to go and look for another dollar somewhere else, you know, when they have, they feel like they're included. And we do, you know, we do appreciate them and we have, you know, a good bonus structure and we have good parties and we, you know, try <laughs> and say thank you a lot to the staff. I, which I, I was just going to ask, is there anything particular you've done that, that helps you to say thank you? Uh, you know, I'm on site a lot is in my role, more so than some other production managers are. And I thank everybody every time I'm on site and, you know, make a point of making, of connecting with people and talking to them. And, you know, luckily at this size, I still know everybody's name and I know who their kids are and I know, you know, usually what's going on in their life for the most part. Um, you know, and I've worked with a lot of these people I've been working with for over 10 years. And so, you know, we're, uh, it's a pretty tight group in that sense. And so and the new guys that come in, I try and make the same effort to get to know them as much as I can. Yeah. And with the other ownership as well. They don't have as much interaction, but they still it's important to them. Nick, Richard Branson has a great quote to kind of follow up exactly what you've been saying. It says, train people well enough so they can leave, but treat them well enough so they don't want to. And I think, you know, having that culture as the primary goal is you know, it's a fantastic lesson for the people listening. Now, getting into the logistics of training, when you have a new hire come on, you know, if you're talking about weatherizing a new construction window or replacement window, how you want a crown molding, you know, just the details in there. Do you have certain things set up in your office where you can say, this is how we want this caulk joint to look, or this is how we want this to look? You know, tell me about the training process in terms of time and, and you know, a brief description on how you do that. The way that we've set up our training process is, I think, you know, over the years, we've worked with our sort of more senior carpenters to get on the same page because they all had different ways of doing it. And sometimes, you know, we go back and forth about it, but we all have sort of consensed on how we're going to do these things. And now we have a, it's like a, it's like a, like a trifold card that the, that the new carpenters carry with them that has a list of things that we want them to be trained on. And so there's, there's three sections of it. One is, you know, sort of exposure to it. One is, you know, practice and doing it. And then one is mastery. And so they have to walk, they keep that card and it's their responsibility when they get to a new job or they're with a, with a you know, new lead carpenter to say, Hey, you know, I have, I've signed off on my table saw and my joiner, but I'd love to get more experience with the planer or I've done, you know, I've done interior doors, but I haven't done an exterior door. So if there's a chance I'd like to do this kind of thing is I sort of put it on to them to be, um, to sort of advocate for themselves at the same time, the new, uh, you know, the lead carpenters also know that they have these cards and they'll check in with them. And they are generally, our lead carpenters are people who are generally interested in building the stuff and, you know, they'd like to train the new guys. And so it's worked out pretty well so far. And if we have someone who's really new, like totally green, we'll try and pair them up with somebody for a little while, whether three to six months so that they, you know, don't get hurt, begin to understand the ropes learn some basics from somebody and then we'll, and then they can, they move on to their own and get moved around the different jobs. It gives them a chance to kind of track their progress and we can see how they're doing. So I've known the company for a little while, Nick, and we've known each other for a little while. Um, I know you haven't been 19 million and this size, you know, uh, just overnight, where did you find all these people? I'm sure there's going to be people listening in on this that go like, yeah, I'd love to do that, but I can't even find somebody that can drive a nail, you know? And so I'm really curious as to how did this, 
how I know it takes a little bit of time and it, it, it maybe happened over 10 years, but where do these people come from? I, you mentioned some come to you, which I, I can respect, but it, is there, are there other sources? Are you doing anything actively that recruits people to the company? We don't really do anything actively. I'm sorry to, to say, I mean, a lot of That's people okay. had, had, you know, you talk about people coming from, we have a lot of competitors that come to us and have said they just want to work with us. Like they'd be either because their companies are going to the more project management style and okay. that they're, they're subbing everything out. And so those guys who used to be doing the cabinet installs are now sweeping floors and they're subbing out the cabinet installs to a subcontractor. Uh, okay. And that, that that's not what they want to do. Um, they want to, you know, be doing the cabinet installations and that stuff. And so they've come to us because we continue to do that work ourselves. We get a lot of referrals from our subcontractors. In other words, if they, you know, we'll reach out to our subs and say, listen, we need more carpenters. We need another lead. We're looking for a project manager. And because they work with other, with our competitors or other companies, they'll say, oh, this is a good guy. And they know how we work. And they'll, they'll say, you know, I think this guy would be a good fit. And I think we've had a fairly good success with those referrals um, from different companies. And then we also ask our, our own staff all the time, say, you guys know anybody, you know, let us know if you think someone would be a good fit. We have, we have stepped it up and offered a reward. Um, you know, if someone can, someone recommends us and they work out for six months, we'll give them a, a bonus. And that we've gotten three people that way, just through our own staff for people, you know, more necessarily thinking about the fact that we were hiring. And it's also important to let your staff know that you are hiring because if right. you, they don't know that you're actually actively looking or what roles you're looking for. And so they may not be, you know, we ended up with a, with another estimator through one of our project managers because he knew her from another life. And so you just never know how those things will come together. And so, but we don't, you know, we don't advertise. We've tried going to the um, trade schools and so on, but that's pretty hit or miss. Right. Uh, we have the benefit in Boston of the North Bennett Street School, which is a pretty interesting place where they train carpenters really well. And uh, we've had a couple guys that way, but it's not, again, most of it's kind of people coming to us or people we would just worked with for a long time. Really cool. So as we start wrapping it up, Nick, is there any little pearl of wisdom, any little insight, anything we haven't talked about already uh, that you might pass on to people who are thinking about, you know, keeping to the employee model, even though they're getting to be up in the six, eight, ten million dollar range where a lot of companies are just thinking about the subcontract thing. I mean, it, it is challenging, and I know that the fear exists about, you know, it's easier to do when everything's booming, like it is right now, and it's easier right. to keep everybody busy, and there's that fear of what do you do when it's not a great economy. But I think that the for us, the benefits of just the control of schedule, the control of quality, um, you know, the, ex, the clear expectations that we have going into projects outweighs the benefit of you know, the ability to sort of shed guys easily and bring them on easily. Cause I don't, I don't think that it's actually that easy. If you get into a pinch to bring in a good quality con subcontractor to help you get out of the pinch, like you're going to be stuck with whoever's available. And I think that that has the implications of doing a bad job for having a, you know, a, a, a sub ideal product left behind because we got stuck in a pinch because of whatever sets of reasons is untenable for us. And so we feel like it's really important to keep, you know, our level, our quality is what sells itself and continues to promote the company going forward. And to give that away, give that control away to somebody else, whether I end up with someone's B crew 
or their C crew instead of their A crew, you know, you're stuck. And that's, we can't, we feel like that's, uh, that's too much of a risk for us. And we'd rather take the risk of how do we keep these guys busy when things slow down a bit and how do we get creative that way later on, as opposed to jeopardizing the projects as we are. Well, Nick, this has been fantastic. It's great information for our listeners. I know a lot of people, you know, go back and forth with this. So I really want to thank you for your time today. And thank you for joining us on the Tim Fowler Show. We wish you continued success and look forward to having you back in the future. Thank you. Take care, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. So, Tim, I think this was eye-opening for me. I thought there was a bunch of different, uh, a bunch of great details here. What was, what's stuck out for you? Oh, I think it's just important everybody to remember that uh, there's a couple of different ways to do this and there's benefits and struggles for each of them. And, and Nick and his uh, partners there in the business have really focused on a quality craftsmanship as well as control. And so, and I, and I believe that control would be different than just beating up a sub or, or forcing a sub to get something done. It's more about managing that process a little bit tighter. And so that's what they like about it. And it seems to be working out uh, extremely, extremely well for them. You always, you know, have one thing that you take away. I thought that the card that the carpenter carries around that goes from exposure to mastery. I mean, that to me is one of the best things I think I've heard in our, all of our podcasts, because you know, that is really a measurement of where that carpenter is. You know, you get 30 carpenters in a room, you're going to find 30 different ways to do something. 25 might be right, you know. So getting the people to do the same thing, to learn from each other, I thought that was just awesome. Well, that that right there uh, is something that, believe it or not, I've been yakking about this for about 20 years trying to get people to not only set a standard in their company, if they're going to have employees set a standard for growth, like in order for you to move to the next level, you have to learn these skills. And then I was a boy scout. And, and when I was a boy scout, we had to carry that little card with us. And as soon as you passed off, you know, saying the scout oath and that kind of thing, someone would sign it. And when you got that card full, then you got promoted to the next rank. And it's the same basic idea. And there was nobody in the Boy Scouts running around saying, do you want to say the Scout Oath? It was up to me. And that's the other great thing about this is it's, it's, a, it's an empowering of the employees to say, if I want to, I can move up in six months. All I have to do is learn. I don't have to wait a year. I don't have to have five years experience. I don't have to you know, do all that. It's such a great tool, and I, I did not know they did that. I know this company fairly well, and I'm just excited that somebody's got this in their, their arsenal. I, I don't know if you can hear it in my voice or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, once again, Tim, a great show. We want to thank Nick Beasley for joining us, and thank you for listening to another episode of The Tim Fowler Show. And remember, we're helping the bottom line through production training. This has been another episode of The Tim Fowler Show. Want to hire Tim and fast track your growth? Visit remodelersadvantage.com slash consulting to learn more. And if you'd like more information about Roundtables, our world-class peer advisory program, please send me an email at steve at remodelersadvantage.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show and comment on iTunes. Thanks for listening, 
We'll see you next week.